Kia ora, welcome to this episode in Season 3 of Recovering. I'm Frank Ritchie, Church Minister, Chaplain and Radio Broadcaster. Recovering is a Media Chaplaincy New Zealand podcast highlighting the excellent work of Aotearoa New Zealand journalists. In each episode, I sit down with a leading journalist to discuss the story that's had the biggest impact on them both personally and professionally. In this episode, I talked with RNZ reporter Anusha Bradley. Anusha has been with RNZ for 14 years and over that time has created an extensive body of work. The whistleblower says many call centre staff she knows often browse through claimants' medical files for fun, even though they're told not to, but no one's checking up. Last year her work saw her take out Best News Reporter at the New Zealand Radio Awards and an award at the Voyager Media Awards. This year she was a finalist for Reporter of the Year at the Voyagers. They decided to speak out after RNZ reported claimants and advocates were unhappy about the way the agency handles sensitive information and how ACC responded with assurances that it takes privacy seriously. The whistleblower says... They haven't seen any evidence of this. In this episode of Recovering, Anusha and I chatted about her coverage of privacy issues within ACC, examining its handling of sensitive information. Not only is it a story about ACC, but it's also a look into how journalism can straddle the border between simple objective storytelling and healing for those involved. It's also a window into how stories can grow when the issue is systemic, not just hurting one person, but many. Often this isn't seen until one story is told, opening the door for others to share their pain and hurt. While Anusha doesn't go into detail, a quick warning. This episode does mention sexual abuse and suicide. If these trigger anything for you, please do not hesitate to reach out to the appropriate helplines. We'll give you some details at the end of this episode. Anusha, thanks for coming in. It's a pleasure to have you in our little studio for this episode of Recovering. It's absolutely an honour to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to start where I start with everybody, and that's your career in journalism. When you were growing up, did you always imagine being a journalist? No. Um, <laughs> I grew up wanting to be an archaeologist. Oh, really? Then an that would have been cool. <laughs> it would have been cool. Um, look, but I always loved the news. I have distinct memories of watching, you know, 60 Minutes on a Sunday evening, Cameron Bennett. I wanted, I was like fascinated by the news and, and current affairs, but I never imagined being a journalist. I don't know why. And it really wasn't until I um, finished uni, I ended up doing a degree in politics in Italian. And I don't know why, but I was like, do I go down the academic route? Or do I do something different? And I thought, how about I go to journalism school? It was really a random uh, choice for me. But when I that first day at journalism school, I knew this is what I wanted to do. It just made sense. I think I just, yeah, hadn't really clicked or realised, uh, but I've been a journalist ever since. Can I back up a little bit? You mentioned politics and Italian. Yes, yes. Explain the Italian. Yeah, I know. It's a bit random, isn't it? Um, in my last year of high school, I did a, an AFS exchange to Italy. So I spent um, the academic year in Italy for my last year of school. And yeah, I learned Italian as a result. And so when I came back, I, again, I didn't really know what I wanted to do at university, ended up doing politics and attacked on some Italian papers at the end. Wow. So journalism, obviously just random then. It was a bit. I mean, I fell in love with politics, especially international relations. And I mean, obviously that's current events Mm. focused. And I just, I think that was sort of priming me for this. Like I was always really interested in what was happening overseas, international news, world institutions. And that sort of, I always thought maybe I'd go into sort of 
a diplomatic career, work with MFAT or something like that. But when it came down to the crunch, I wasn't really sure I really would be very good at that, like towing the line, so to speak. Because <laughs> that's what you have to do in those kind of careers. And so, yeah, I think I was always primed for journalism, but just hadn't quite realised it. What did you discover about yourself then? And doing journalism, what, what did you find out? I realised that I just love hearing people's stories and I love talking to people and meeting people. I'm so curious about people's lives. I'm probably a bit nosy sometimes, but I just love hearing about their lives that I'm able to tell their stories, especially people who maybe wouldn't necessarily be heard otherwise. I think the power of journalism is actually being a messenger for those people who don't have a voice. Mm. And yeah, that's what, I, that's what I love about it. And when you're, when you're studying, there's an imagination of what will come and what will be. And when we're young, those are, those are often big, wonderful pictures. Has your journalism career been what you imagined it to be when you're studying? Mm. I don't know. I think, I think I just always looked at the next job. I think I always wanted to do investigative work. I mean, I, as I remember saying, watching 60 Minutes as a child and being fascinated by those stories, but I never really thought I could do it. And so I just sort of plod along, slowly building up, I guess, a portfolio and moving on to slightly more challenging jobs. I did, I've done everything. I've done business reporting, general news, a bit of sub-editing. I've done a bit, of, a bit of it all, really. And I think it's slowly led to this role where I am now, where I get to really explore issues in depth and take the time that's needed to really cover an issue. And I love that. It's worth acknowledging that it's taken years to get there because a lot of people dream about investigative journalism, taking their time with stories. But when you get thrown into the mix right from the get-go, straight out of journalism school, that's not how it works, is it? No, and I think, I mean, it took, takes you years to learn the craft of journalism, and it is a craft. I think you, you learn how to talk to people and how to write, and I'm still learning. I'm still learning how to interview, and I'm still learning how to write. I wouldn't say I'm a naturally a good writer, but I'm, I'm getting better every day, with every time I write. And I've had some experts help me along the way, some really amazing journalists who have taken me under their wing and taught me how to to interview and how to write and how to be in my craft. So, yeah, I've been really lucky in that respect. That's a theme that I've noticed in this series, probably more than previous series, is, is people talking about those who have had an influence on their work and the admiration for those people that they learned from. So tell us about some of those people for you. I think back in the day uh, when my first job, I, uh, I worked for the Horofinawa Kapiti Chronicle and I had a really amazing editor there and chief reporter and they really taught me the basics of journalism. And then I went overseas and I worked in, in London on some business newspapers and I had I worked with some really what you call hardcore old school, you know, Fleet Street journalists who just knew their stuff and they're amazing. They really guided me. David Hellyer is one. And then when I came back to New Zealand and I worked for the business team at RNZ, I had Patrick O'Mara who O'Mara, who was the business editor then, who really taught me the craft of radio and how to tell business stories for radio, which is actually really tricky. You don't want a lot of numbers. You want to tell the story without a lot of numbers, a lot of detail, and, and, and that was amazing. And then more recently, Veronica Schmidt, who was the former executive editor of In-Depth at RNZ, she really recruited me to my current role and really guided me in how to write and taught me how to write features and tell stories that way. And so I've, had, I've been really lucky. And even my colleague Guy Nespina, who I chat to all the time, he's really good at giving advice and we chat quite often and yeah, he's been really great. And you've been at RNZ now for, uh, the internet says, about 14 to 15 years. That's a solid stretch in one place. It's, it's 
not unheard of in New Zealand media, obviously. There's lots of people who have been in one place for a long time, but 14 to 15 years is a good stretch. Yeah, I know. It's, it's quite a long time, isn't it? It doesn't feel that long. I think it's because I, I've moved around different roles. So I started off the business team, and then I moved to general news in Auckland, and then I got a break and I became the Hawke's Bay regional reporter in 2018. And I moved to Hawke's Bay with my family where my partner grew up, my husband grew up. And so that was a big move. And I covered Hawke's Bay for about three years before moving to the in-depth team. And I think I've been really lucky because RNZ has given me lots of different jobs and I've taken time out to have children as well. And they've always been so supportive of me in everything I've done. So yeah, I feel really supported there. It's mm, great. You mentioned Hawke's Bay, which means that Cyclone Gabriel and everything that's happened there has been your home. Your home has been hit. What was the experience like for you? First, within the cyclone, and then let's talk about how the, the reporting of it has played out. Yeah, that. I mean, the last two months have been a pretty crazy time in Hawke's Bay. I, um, me and my family, our property was flooded, but the house was okay. So, but we did lose both our cars and a garage full of stuff, which in the scheme of things isn't like, you know, the worst case scenario at all. But yeah, it really affected me just not being able to, for that first week, we had no power, no communications. I had no idea what was going on. We didn't have proper transport either. <laughs> and so I was really stuck at home with, with my children and family and we had no idea what was going on. I didn't have, this, now this is ironic, I didn't have a transistor radio. I use get all my news from the RNZ app and other apps <laughs> and I was kicking myself basically because I had no way to get the, the radio news. I had to sit in my flooded, soggy flooded car to listen to the news every hour or so because I was desperate for news. Wow. But I couldn't do that all day. And so I remember like when I did get reception, I think one of the first things I said to my mum, can you send me a transistor radio? They've all sold out here. And she did. So I'm well prepared for next for next event. But um, yeah, it was really hard not being able to rush out and report. And obviously RNZ sent in a team of excellent reporters to cover what was going on. But I felt really disconnected from that mm. because I was unable to go and report. I was just dealing with my family and our messy property and our community really. And in a way, we're in our own little bubble dealing with that. And I had no idea, apart from listening to the radio, I had no idea what was going on, really, because of the lack of communications, no internet, no power. I didn't see any pictures or video uh, for like about a week. And so when I did first see the pictures that came in, when we got internet back on, I was just overwhelmed at the scale of the disaster. You hear about it on the radio, but you have no... You can't really imagine imagine it in your head until you see it. And then when I went for my first drive, we, we had limited transport and also we were told not to drive to go rubbernecking uh, because the roads were all closed anyway. And so when I did finally go for a drive into Napier through Pakawai, which is one of the areas that was completely devastated, they had water over people's roofs, people being plucked from chimneys, that kind of thing. Oh, I just was so emotionally, I just was a wreck basically. I couldn't believe it. And... Every now and then I do, do drive through that area from Hastings, between Hastings and Napier. And I still see this damage is still there and it still every time gets me. It's really tough. Yeah. Yeah. See, there's a couple of things in there that catch my attention. Uh, that sense of, I don't know if it's the right word, but that sense of uselessness where the thing that you've trained to do, the thing that you're built to do, the thing that's in your DNA, and it's sparking for you because you're going out to the car to check the news every hour. It's in your bones. You can't do it. That must have just... I would have felt useless. Yeah, well, I did. I felt really useless and I felt really frustrated. But also, you know, I had to also just focus on my family as mm. well. And um, we were all feeling a bit fragile. 
And so it was probably good for me to just to stay home and look after me and mine. And yeah, but I also felt quite frustrated that I couldn't go out and report. And what I did do, though, I did ended up writing like a sort of personal essay about my experience because I've had to write something. I had to yeah. do something. And I it was funny because I had opened up my work laptop one day and I was like, I have to write something. And then and because we had no power, I wasn't unable to charge it. I had 11% battery. And so I wrote this sort of essay sort of in a flurry in like an hour. And then when I finally got a car, I drove, I think, on a Saturday morning to Hastings to send it to my editor because that was where I could get reception, you know. And I was trying to like find a reception. And it was just such a palaver, really. But that was all I could do. And that was that was quite a good thing for me. It was quite a therapeutic to write because <laughs> I sure. felt like I was contributing, but also just telling people why I couldn't report as well and what it was like living living in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, very good. You also mentioned that the devastation continues. It's, it's still there. And this is one of the difficulties of the news cycle. And it's understandable. Trying to keep people's attention on something that, that big for that long is hard. So there's a lot of Kiwis for whom it might not be front of mind anymore. But it's still there. Yeah. I mean, you you can drive around Hawke's Bay and you can think that nothing has ever happened. There are areas where it just looks normal. And then you turn a corner and it's just complete devastation. It's really, there really are these big pockets where it's, um, it is complete and utter de- devastation. And it's still, people are still shifting silt. People are still trying to repair homes or they've been completely abandoned. And I think we're just waiting. We're still waiting to find out what's going to happen to those areas. And I think... My sense is from talking to people that people are just getting a bit tired now and a bit frustrated. They don't know what the future holds. That initial spark of energy that after an emergency is faded and it's being replaced by a bit of weariness. So, yeah, I think everyone's waiting to find out what the future is for some areas. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what happens. All right, let's dive into the main topic that you want to talk about, the story that has had a a big impact on you. And I was reading the stories last night. It's complicated. So can you give us an overview of the story that you want to cover? Mm. So in 2021 and early 22, I took a deep dive into ACC and the way that it handled sensitive claims. Sensitive claims are injuries, mostly mental injuries, that result from sexual abuse. And... ACC has provided help to people with sensitive claims for a couple of decades now. There were concerns raised with me that people were worried about changes in ACC and how they dealt with these claims. Previously, they had a sensitive claims unit and all the claims were dealt with by this unit and you had one case manager and you dealt with one person and the content was really restricted to that case manager and other experts who needed to see your file. Through, I guess, restructuring and the way that ACC organised itself, it it basically opened that up and more people were able to see these claims. And people uh, started contacting me with concerns about that. I first got contacted by a couple, we'll call them Kate and Matthew, and they had done some digging basically and and Matthew had had a physical injury and he had been off work on ACC for a couple of years after being injured. And But he also had a sensitive claim and ACC was wanting to look at his sensitive claim to to determine what help he could get and what funding he could get for his physical claim. And they were really upset about this and they contacted me because they had found that ACC staff had been looking at his sensitive claim file without his permission. And yeah, it it was quite a story because I had to go through and verify all the information, and then I had to contact ACC, and they were basically saying, well, yeah, everything, everything's fine here, nothing to see, 
every access is justified. We take privacy seriously. Can I, can I ask how they justified it? Because uh, reading the story, his claim, his sensitive claim was closed, which means that after that, pretty much nobody should be looking at it. And then he is uh, in a Zoom meeting. Some things get said that signal to him that these people in the Zoom meeting from ACC have been looking at that claim. There's no other way they could be saying what they've been saying unless they've looked at that claim. So he's smart enough to then ask for a digital footprint on that file, which is a very, very smart thing to do. Finds out that about 90 staff members at ACC have opened it over 300 times. How did they justify that? Yeah, well, that's a really good question, and we still don't really have answers to that. They said that they needed to have a holistic picture of his all his injuries, and that wasn't what his understanding was of how ACC sensitive claims were managed. So he was really shocked. If you think about it, if you've been physically abused or sexually abused, especially as a child, you often lock that away, mm-hmm. and you don't deal with that, and often comes to the surface as an adult. Well, that, this is what people have told me. And so this man, he was having to relive that trauma of having to deal with this issue. And every time it came up, he would just basically break down. And so it really was a big issue for him. And his doctors were actually warning ACC, please don't even go into that sensitive claim. Don't mention it. It's nothing to do with his physical injury. And even his wife, who was his advocate, um, a ACC investigator went into her sensitive claim as well, which a review, an ACC review later found actually was a breach of her privacy. And I understand that in terms of Matthew's case, it's a decision still to be made with that was a breach of privacy. But yeah, as a result of that story and a following story as well about ACC staff sharing sensitive client information on Snapchat, which is a social media app, ACC actually undertook an independent investigation into all like privacy issues. And that review actually found there were some deep-rooted problems at ACC and not just in the terms of way of how they dealt with sensitive claims, but more generally as well. And so they made 30 recommendations, and I think they won't all be implemented until the end of this year. So I'm really, I will be picking up the story again to see whether all those recommendations have been implemented at the end of the year and see what improvements have been made. But um, it was a troubling time, and I think I heard from so many people, and they were so distressed, not only by the trauma they'd suffered, but actually by the processes or government processes actually, when they sought help for that sexual abuse, they were treated in a way that actually re-traumatised them. Yeah. I, there's, there's a personal element in this for me because I've dealt with those things in my own life as a child. And I uh, mentioned that I was going to be talking about this uh, with a colleague, and he said, have you ever thought about putting in a claim yourself? And I said, no, uh, partly because I wouldn't want to relitigate at all. I wouldn't want to have to risk retelling the story over and over and over again to a bunch of people. So, uh Yeah, I could imagine the experience. I just want to make sure that those who are listening understand the depth of the experience that these people have been through and the the re-traumatizing when something like this goes on, when a breach like this occurs. Can I ask, did they know you initially when they got in touch? How did that story come about for Mm. you? I initially got into ACC because I did some stories about how ACC had changed the way that it was processing claims for birth injuries. And I wrote a story about how they had done a policy review that resulted in much fewer women actually getting access to 
uh, or having their injuries covered. And that, that story actually provoked a law change. And so now, as a result, from October last year, pretty much every birth injury is now covered by ACC. But as a result of that, I started looking more into ACC. And when you do an ACC story, you just all these people come out of the woodwork. Unfortunately, it seems that many people are unhappy with the system. And so I basically took a deep dive into the organisation because so many people approached me with their, their problems. And this is the thing with systemic stories. Uh, if, if that's happened for one person, it's happened for lots of people. Those other people just haven't said anything. And then you give them the mechanism to be able to say something. You become the person that they get in touch with because you've told this story for this person over here, so you must be safe. So what are we talking about in terms of you put that story out, then what, what happened? I would do one story and then I would get six emails a day from other victims with similar stories. It was actually really heartbreaking and I would try to contact them. I would contact each one and talk to them, but I would have to explain that I couldn't do everyone's story. And so that's how Matthew and Kate contacted me. They just contacted me out of the blue and say, look, we're having real issues with ACC. Can you help us? And I immediately recognised that this was a story I could do because they had all the evidence and proof. They'd actually done most of the hard work of their own investigation. They'd got the digital footprints. I just had to verify it all and I had to talk to them and and put it into a format that made it accessible to the public because it was really complex. Mm. That that story again sparked more stories. So when once their story was out, I mean, an ACC response was like, we take privacy seriously. Every action is justified. And so that just provoked even more people to come forward. And then one day, just out of the blue, I got a call. Actually got a message from RNZ saying, please call this person. They want to talk to you about ACC. And I was like, okay, just join the queue. You know, <laughs> But I had five minutes spare that, that afternoon. And I called this person back. And it turned out that they were a call centre worker at ACC. And they had the most incredible story. That She was part of a Snapchat group. She was horrified what the Snapchat group was doing. They were taking pictures of their screens, of people's claims and information. And there were horrible claims that people who had hurt themselves getting drunk or they were intoxicated by drugs and they'd done something stupid. Or one person had tried to t- attempted to try to kill themselves because of a sensitive claim. So it's really heavy stuff. Mm. And they were laughing about it in the Snapchat group. And, um, I mean, these this group, they were mostly young people. They later found out a lot of them hadn't had privacy training. They were kind of temp workers, so maybe they hadn't had the training necessary. But she was horrified, and so she contacted me, and she and she gave me these pictures, and she said, you know, I'm horrified by what ACC is telling you because this is not, not the case, what I'm seeing. And so that story provoked that privacy review in the end. And you know, I think as a result, ACC has made and is making some quite substantial changes. They have reduced a lot of the staff who have access to sensitive claims as a result, almost by about 40%, I think. And they are trying to put in measures to make sure that when someone, like a worker, like a call centre worker, brings up a sensitive claim file, that they can only access the sort of the patient information and address stuff, not the medical records. They're trying to they are trying to put in, in place better measures. But yeah, it was um pretty heavy going. Like you you hear from people all the time with these huge deep seated problems and, and really they not only had been traumatized by the actual abuse, but I felt like they had been broken by the system that was supposed to look after them. And that was really hard to deal with. I would have people sometimes call me who were suicidal. Mm. They were broken by the system. They, the police didn't believe them about being raped. Then ACC wouldn't give them cover. 
And, you know, they were at their wits' end. I do remember recalling my editor once saying, oh, my goodness, I don't know what to do. I've just had a call from someone who's threatening to kill themselves. We had a bit of a hooey, like, what do we do? Mm. You know, and I jumped back on the call with her and I just stayed with her. And then I sent her, you know, some information. I sort of talked to her down and then, and then said, you need to call someone else or call your therapist or someone. And it was just, it's really hard to deal with. I don't, I didn't have the training. I don't have the training. I'm empathetic, but I think that's really yeah, it's a really hard thing to deal with as a journalist because you you want to help people, but um, I found it quite yeah I found it quite difficult for myself as well. Did you anticipate that coming when you did that first story? No, not at all. Yeah, I didn't. I think the scale of the reaction of how many how many stories I got back every time I did a story, um, or how many sort of emails I'd, I'd get was quite surprising. And as I said, I would try to talk to everyone and I, and I would listen to their story, which is sometimes really horrible, you know, actually always they were horrible. And that personally affected me as well. Like, And so it got to a point where in early 2022, I could have kept going, actually. There's so many stories to tell. I actually felt like I had to give it up just for my own personal mental health because I just didn't know how to deal with some of the stories basically. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a really healthy step to take because it's hard. I mean, you're you're there to tell a story, but when you open a story like that, people are coming to you and they're they're seeking justice, but deeper than that they're seeking healing. And so talking about it is part of the healing. So you move from being the journalist to someone who's playing a part in their healing process. That's hard. And they would often say that. I'd do a story about someone's case and they would say, thank you so much for listening to me. Thank you. You've really helped me in my healing. And that would feel amazing. But then I would get 10 more emails from people who I couldn't help. And I, I actually feel, while I'm proud of the work I did, I do feel sometimes I, I feel like, I, yeah, I, I failed in a way. I failed to help everyone. And that's quite hard to deal with as a, as, a, as a journalist as well. And I still get emails from people and I just have to say, sorry, I've, I've got other projects I'm working on and maybe we'll keep in touch. So, you know, I still get still get those requests, and but I'm just not sure if I'm ready to take it on again. Yeah. It's a really wise decision to step away because mm. uh, it would be easy to engage that messianic complex and try and save everybody. As a minister, I can relate to relate to that. Uh what prompted that that decision to step away rather than just staying in and trying to save everybody? How did you make that call? I think I just got to a point where the emotional toll was so high that I and I I just felt like I couldn't help them objectively, you know. And that's really important. Even though you, as a journalist, you try and be objective, you still you still have some personal bias and you still come in from an empathetic point of view. And and I just felt that I was feeling anxious about it as well you know that I couldn't help people and so yeah I, I accessed counselling to help me make the decision and I, just by chance I got a counsellor who had worked with ACC Sensitive Claims and she knew exactly what I was talking about and it was really good to hear from her perspective that this is hard work this is difficult complex work and yes you don't have the training to deal with it and take a break mm. yeah and so I have and I mean it's been really really good but I do feel guilty as well for not being able to continue with that work. Aside from that feeling of guilt, the pressure of it, how did that physically present itself for you? I think it's just anxiety. So you sort of feel like you're in knots a bit. And yeah, just struggling to know how how to pursue a topic as well. If you, you, know, if you can't look at it objectively, it's sort of feel a bit stuck. Mm. What about things like sleep? Eating. Yeah, all those. <laughs> Not so much eating. I've n- never had any problem eating, but um, <laughs> sleep, yeah. Sleep, yeah. 
So are we talking Are we talking sleeplessness? Yeah, you know, I would see myself emails at 3 a.m., oh, I've got to do this, you know, and yeah. check out that angle and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, which is probably not unusual for many people, but <laughs> it's not good. So yeah. is it becoming slightly obsessive about the story? Yeah, it also just would worry about the actual people as well. You know, I would worry that would this help them? Is this actually going to help them? I know it's probably not my job to think that or to worry about that, but I would worry about whether they were, once you're exposed to the media, you know, or you do a story, they're out there, you know, I'd feel responsible for that if it didn't go well. And sometimes stories didn't get changed. Sometimes stories didn't work out or sometimes, you know, it wouldn't go the way they like it. You know, maybe ACC wouldn't make any change to their case and so uh, that would actually not help them in the end as well. It would almost make it harder. So I felt personally responsible responsible for that on some level. Yeah, and this is where as a journalist you're, you're taking a bit of a punt. Uh, you write the story hoping for change, but change might not necessarily happen. And then you've got to... Then you've got to process and deal with that as well. ACC could have just dug their heels and not done any sort of review, uh, which would have been politically difficult for them. But there's a punt there that isn't necessarily going to pay off. That's that's hard. Yeah, I think so. And I think you get some wins in journalism. They're quite rare. <laughs> but I think you also lose a lot. But that's just part of the process. It's fantastic when you can make change. But that, that has happens very, can happen very slowly. Uh, my philosophy in journalism is death by a thousand cuts, so I just have to keep going. You know, hopefully you make you make change. It's very rare that you just do one story and there's change. That did happen with the birth injuries. That was a complete surprise, but I've never had that happen <laughs> before or again. So yeah. Once you decided to step away from the story, I would imagine that then requires some some self control to properly step away, to not check everything, to keep going back and relitigating things. How did you do that? Yeah, because well, you. You do sort of live that story, and I did did live that for a good year. It was hard to step away, especially when you get people emailing you. And so what I did is I would start to just pass on stories to other reporters that were keen to take take on some challenging stories. And that was actually really good because I knew that they were being looked after that these victims were being looked after by other excellent journalists and also sharing the load. So it wasn't just me. It wasn't just my responsibility. And that worked for a while. And then once I had some distance, I could just say, sorry, I'm not covering this topic anymore. I've got to focus on other things. And I got better at saying no. I think that's something we all have to get better at, eh? Saying no to things. <laughs> something I'm learning about. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> saying no without having to apologise yeah, as well. Sure. We're very good at saying no. Sorry, here's why. But just saying no, I think, is, is totally worthwhile. I think with this lesson, for me, is really being about putting in good boundaries and knowing what I'm capable of and what I'm not capable of. And that I can do a job, a really good job within a certain limit. But if I push myself too much, it affects me too much. And so this has been, in a way, a great a great learning curve for me, a great lesson. Yeah, I like that point about knowing what your capabilities are. I think there's a lot of people who get into, who create trouble because they're out of their depth thinking that they can solve a problem. I think that's extremely, extremely wise. You've talked about possibly going back into the story uh, as ACC implements some of the changes based on the recommendations. How does it not turn into the same quagmire for you, emotionally, mentally? I think having some space now, I can look at with fresh eyes and feeling good. But yeah, I may end up getting drawn back into that. But I think I can focus on the actual just organisation and the structure and how it's working out, the political side of it as well, rather than unless there are some extreme examples 
like case studies that, that do pop up. But I think having some distance and perspective is really good because you can, again, learn what you how to go about it better the second time round. It's mm. good. So a lot of wisdom in everything that you've just said and the things that you've learned from from the process, which is one of the reasons we do this podcast, is so that those who are coming through the ranks get to hear some of that wisdom so they don't necessarily make the same mistakes. So if you, if, if you were talking to a young journalist who might be starting into a story like this, what advice would you give them? Yeah, that's such a good question because <laughs> I wish I had this advice. <laughs> I think when you're a young journalist, if you're like me, you just want to throw yourself at everything and you do it 110% and you really get involved involved in a story and I think journalism is like the rewards are reaped because you really put in a lot of effort you know you really it's really self-driven the more effort you put in you often get you can get a really good result but that does come at a personal cost and you have to be really mindful of that and so it's really good to create those boundaries between work and personal life and I think with the 24-hour news cycle and just how we're all connected to our phones 24-7 as well it's kind of, sometimes can be hard to differentiate between work and play and how far to push yourself and so I think just yeah putting in those boundaries knowing what you're capable of don't be afraid to say no if it's getting too much don't be afraid to, to seek out, seek help, you know, ask someone. I'm I'm struggling with the story. It's really affecting me. What can I do? And I mean, RNZ has great free counselling sessions through an EAP system. System we have, and we have some really great journalists. You, you know, everyone's really collegial. We can. I feel like we can reach out to other people, for, ask for help. So I think you should do that. Yeah, mm, that's good. How do you create that differential between work, play? family so that it's not bleeding across all the time. I mean, it's near on impossible to completely switch it off, but you do have to find ways to create those boundaries. How do you do that? I think my family is just such a grounding influence for me. And so I really feel like I've put my family first in some ways uh, for a lot of time. And it's funny, my husband, he's He's not a huge news fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably like good. He keeps up to, up to date with the news, but he's not a news junkie like me. And I see that like, well, yeah, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. And so he's he's a real rock and a real grounding influence for me. And my children, you know, they're just amazing beings and they just bring me back to my sensibilities more often than not. <laughs> and so I think as, you know, working families, we just have to put in those boundaries to be able to function as a family, but also work. And RNZ has been great because I can sort of flexible work around family as well. So I work the hours that I need to around the family. So it's worked out quite well for me. Now, can I ask, you've won a couple of awards, and at the time of this recording, you've been nominated for a Voyager Media Award as well. How does how does that feel? <laughs> it's really nice to be acknowledged, but then at the same time, awards, I'm thinking award schmords. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, so many amazing journalists don't even get a mention or don't even bother putting in a nomination, and I feel sometimes it's just so subjective. You know, it's not the be all end all, is it? But it is nice to be acknowledged. And at the end of the day, I don't know. I don't. I don't hold too much to it. <laughs> yeah, it's just a piece of paper, isn't it? And a fancy dinner or something at the end of the day. But yeah, no, but it is nice. Yeah. Yeah, and let's acknowledge it's nice to get dressed up like properly dressed up for the <laughs> yeah, VMAs and to have that three-course meal. I uh, I turn up because I love the three-course meal, and it's a great great room to hang out with uh, some amazing people as well. It's also really good to just celebrate journalism. Yeah, it is. Um, there are not many times where journalists just get together. Together, We're always either on a story or if you see fellow journalists from other rival media organisations, you're on a story together and so you're busy working. 
Uh, it's really good just to celebrate journalism, especially the last three years yes. where I feel like and I've been sort of personally affected by this. I feel like, you know, journalism has been given a really bad name. We've been under attack by a lot of people and it's quite hard not to take that personally sometimes when you have such a passion for it. I just love what I do. I, I really believe in the power of journalism and sometimes to be told, oh, but you're just all, you know, paid by the government and, you know, you're whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it can be quite hard to hear. And so just to celebrate really good journalism is actually quite uplifting. I think that's what struck me most about the last Voyager Media Awards was the opportunity to celebrate. It came through, I think, more on the stage than I've seen it before, that sense that the media is to a degree under fire uh, and that it doesn't always feel great to be in, in, in the industry at the moment. So to have that celebration, I think, is really healthy. Yeah, Thinking about the future of media and journalism in Aotearoa, New Zealand, Anusha, what do you imagine? Oh, that's a big one. <laughs> um what do I imagine? I think, yeah, I think we're under pressure generally as an industry, but also I really feel quite buoyant about the future because I feel like there's so many good journalists and whatever shape or form the industry takes, we'll still have journalists. And I I think the structure of it may change, but at the end of the day, we've got amazing people on the ground who are out there reporting and I, I just feel really, do really feel positive about the future because we do, yeah, people, I think journalists really love what they do. They do it, it's a vocation, it's a passion. You don't do it for the money, <laughs> you do it for the love. And so, yeah, I, I do feel quite positive about it. I think some of the government funding, like the Innovation Fund and some of the uh, local democracy reporting and the Courts of just, Open Justice Project have been really good because it's in, boosted the coverage of just everyday things that are so important to our democracy. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I I don't I'm not all doom and gloom. Let's point out just for a moment the importance of some of that funding because that funding is being construed in the eyes of many as the government controlling the media, which just shows a lack of understanding about the steps in between the the government and the where the funding lands. But if we didn't have that funding now, things like our local democracy reporting, which is hugely necessary in a democracy, would die because there's no commercial gain in it. Same with some of the uh, open justice stuff. So for those who would critique, I think they're completely missing the importance of those things and in terms of holding those in power to account, which most of us have an interest in. We want to know that our, our democracy is functioning well, hence the importance of, of that stuff. Absolutely. And these are really good training grounds for journalists as well, like court work and council work. It's like the bread and butter of journalism. My first job in Levin, I covered, you know, everything. I covered every council meeting. We went to court. It's just where you learn the basics of journalism as well. And also you're telling your local community what's happening. And I think that's really important, not only for journalism, but just for the community. So, yeah, I just, I'm really pleased to see those projects get off the ground and doing really well. Mm. Well, Anusha, it's been a pleasure. And the fact that you're going from here and driving to the city that I live in makes my heart sink because Hamilton, Kirikiriroa Hamilton, is a great city. So enjoy your time there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Nga mihi, Anusha. Thank you for generously taking the time to sit down for this kōrero. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series, and thanks to you for giving some of your precious time to listen. I really do appreciate it. Also, a big thanks to Josh Couch, Sam Donkin, and Steph So Lovamal for producing this podcast. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who would love to hear it. And remember to follow in your favourite app to catch future episodes. 
At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media. We demonstrate that by offering free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up and the coffee's on us. If this episode did trigger any issues for you, here are some helplines that you can get in touch with. Need to talk? Free call or text 1737 anytime to speak to a trained counsellor for any reason. That number again, 1737. For Lifeline, the number is 0800 543 354 or you can text HELP to 4357. Suicide Crisis Helpline is 0508 828 865. That's 0508 828 865. And that's a service for people who may be thinking about suicide or those who are concerned about family or friends. If you want to get in touch with Youthline, the number is 0800 376 633 or you can free text 234 or email talk at youthline.co.nz. And don't ever forget, if it's an emergency and you or someone else is at risk, call 111.